skills. There are certain advantages that you have to coming into the, coming, being local and being in-house that you don't get online. Uh, if you were online, you just didn't see the little antics that I was doing a few moments ago. When I decided it's so warm up here, I need to lose my shoes. So thank you, Jerry, for being my, 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 my shoe bearer. <laughs> thank you, my shoes. I, that, that last song we did, I will never forget, man. Uh, I, I rate worship songs based on their danceability, and that one's off the charts. And that one's just... You, you, you just can't. And I found out, I actually got up there, and I, I, I've been doing some yoga lately, just to stretch out my back. And it gave me a chance to kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, I can shake my booty a little bit. Look at that, you know. So I was getting down. It was good. It was good. Thank you, worship team, for giving me that good back-loosening dance ability uh, worship song. Um, and I, I, I doubt there's a few people on the planet who appreciate more a really good spring day than the people of Minnesota. Uh, is, that, is that right? Especially after the sucky spring we had, man, all the rain and cold. And so finally you get some nice 75, 80 degree days and, and uh, it's, it's not hard to remember the goodness of God when you're, when you're enjoying the weather like that. But it's also important to remember the goodness of God, as we were saying before, in, in a world that is so uh, war-torn and divided and ugly. And, and so, uh, I, I, as Shauna mentioned, I encourage all of us to keep uh, the families of those who were slain out in uh, Buffalo in prayer. And because this is what we do as the people of God, we pray for enemies. Remember to pray for this kid who drove six hours to shoot these people. Uh, 18-year-old kid, and who knows what his prequel is. But we pray for him, too. He'll be spending the rest of his life behind bars, I suspect, but his life is still going on. It's still valuable to God, and so we pray for him and pray he receives forgiveness and, and turns from the way, the course of life that he was heading in. Okay, so we are here uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. We've come to the point. Uh, in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 3, I read these last week. I'll just recite them here to you now. It's the point where Jesus says, don't judge. Because if you judge others, well, that judgment's going to come back on you. And I'll be speaking more about this in, in the weeks to come. But the judgment you give is the judgment you're going to get. So in some sense, the judgment day will simply be a recording, of a replay of the judgments that you've given. So if you don't want to judge, if you don't want to be judged, then don't judge. And to understand why not judging is so important to Jesus. And Jesus says, why are you looking for that dust particle in your neighbor's eye when you've got a tree trunk or a log coming out of your own eyes? And dust particles are really hard to see. I know you ever had like a little dust particle in your eye and you're like, you know, I go to my wife, it's like, honey, can you get this? You see something in there? And she has to look really carefully. And sometimes she'll say, oh, there's a little speck there. Dust particles are hard to see. You wouldn't see it if you weren't looking for it. But see, religious folks look for it. Ah, you got a dust particle. And we call it a log. And we think ours is a dust particle. I'm not perfect, but I only have dust particle sins. You have got the log sins. But Jesus reverses all that. No, 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 no. Assume that you have the log and they've got the dust particle. Don't judge if you don't want to be judged. And the reason why judging, not judging, is so important, and we'll see this more as the series goes on, because while most people don't realize it, judgment is the antithesis of love, and love is everything. Judgment is the antithesis of love, and love is the all-important thing. Uh, love is about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. At the very least, you're taking the time to think about the person and, and agree with God that they, they, they have worth. And so you're, you're paying something to ascribe worth to this person. That's what love does. But judgment does the opposite of that. 
Judgment ascribes worth to yourself at cost to another. What a disgusting human being. What you're doing there when you decide that you are the judge and you get to decide who's disgusting and who's not is when you decide that someone's disgusting, repulsive, or whatever, you're feeling good about yourself because you're not that. And if you're talking to another person, well, you join in this game. In fact, this is what most cable news shows are. Let's talk about how righteous we are against those idiots over there. It becomes just a talking to the choir exercise. Because the, the two sides don't listen to each other. They just listen to themselves. And if you're righteous about it, you're feeding off of it. To judge, you become a parasite of worth. You're sucking worth off of others. Because you're pathetic. And you feel the need, I have to have some worth, and so at least I'm not like that disgusting human being. It's the opposite of love. So we're here revisiting what has been uh, one of the most transformational, maybe the most transformational series we've ever had here at the church in 2002. We talked about love and the knowledge of good and evil, because we'll see here in a little bit that judgment is eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A little bit, I mean, weeks to come, uh, not, not this morning. But it's the original sin of the Bible, because it goes to the core of what it is to be a human being. It, it undermines the central purpose for existence, which is about loving others. The bottom line, then, folks, is that bottom line of that series and the bottom line of this series, because the information is not hard to get. What's hard and challenging is to implement it. But it just comes to us. We are called to love with the same love that God has loved us with. And to do that, we have to refrain from judging. There it is right there. We're called to love, and therefore we're called to not judge. And this, folks, as I mentioned last week, this is the center of the center. This is, this is the bullseye. Uh, this is the all or nothing of the Christian life. If we get this down, everything else we need to get down will be gotten down. But if we fail to get this down, it doesn't matter what else we get down. It's worthless. By kingdom standards, it's worthless. It may look impressive by the world's standards. Anyone can pull off a good, fun dog and pony show, I suppose, but it won't have any kingdom value if it's not done out of love for the purpose of love, to manifest the love of God. Everything hangs on this. And what makes this particularly urgent is that we live in an environment that is hostile to love. We live in an environment that's hostile to this idea of loving everybody all the time, no ifs, ands, buts, exception clauses, or anything, including our enemies. We live in, in especially us in America, although this is somewhat of a global phenomenon, it's, it's intensifying everywhere. But in America, it's super intense where the powers, the principalities and powers are working overtime to pull us into this division, to pull us into having to see each other as, as subhuman, uh, to, to this fragment us, sucking love of, of the other right out of the fabric of our society. It, 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 it's making it hard not to hate. You have to be intentional, not to get pulled into the direction of, look at that disgusting person, that evil, those evil people. That's why it's really important that you just don't listen to one crowd too much. Because you'll get sucked in. You will. You'll start joining the club. Yeah, they are. Because yeah, you're only seeing it one way. Always go out of your way to try to see it from the other side. You don't have to agree with it. It may be loathsome to you, but the person can't be because the person's made in God's image and the person's someone whom Jesus died for. And your most fundamental job as a follower of Jesus is to, is to agree with God about that. Yeah, you cannot like their views, but you're not allowed to not like them. You're, you're called to love them, to agree with God about their unsurpassable worth. So what makes this message so urgent is that we're in an environment, the subtle demonic pull is working against this. And what makes it particularly urgent is that the church, to a large degree, has been sucked up into this. It's just join this, this, this screaming match. 
fact, Christians in general, my, my impression is that Christians in general don't think that judging is that bad of a thing. It's because they don't see how important loving is. So judging is not a big thing. We do it all the time. The, 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 the dust particle sins that we wink at, like slandering people and gossiping about people and, 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 and not being hospitable to people, they happen to be the most frequent sins in the Bible, but we, we, they're just little dust particle sins. Someone's faults who maybe are mentioned two or three times in the Bible, but as long as we don't have them, we notice it because we're looking for the specs. Ha, ah, look at that. And we got the minor stuff, but they got the deal breaker sins. And so we set ourselves up, a large segment of the church is, as, as, and, and people are conditioned to do this. This is just what it is to be a Christian. I've had people tell me after hearing this series on love and judgment, they come up and they say, well, what you call judgment, what you call the eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what you call original sin, well, that's what I thought was Christianity. That's just what Christians do. We're supposed to be the moral police. We are the guardians because we're the saved group. We're the righteous group. We know the ways of God. They don't. The pagans don't. And so sometimes, you know, we're supposed to look at that and, and, and notice their sin. You're supposed to notice that sin. Sometimes you're supposed to call that sin out. And sometimes you're supposed to try to pass laws against that sin. Not against your own sin. No, 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 no. We don't want to do that. But against their sin. And this is what religion does. And they feed off of that. We're the righteous people. The moral police of society. We know better than others. Oh, how good it would be if only all of us Christians could run the world and pass all the laws on people. How has that worked in the past, by the way? Mm, not that good. I like what Luther said. He said, I'd rather have a competent, reasonable pagan for a king than an incompetent Christian. And I think he's absolutely right there. Uh, the history of Christians trying to rule the world is not a very good object lesson. And so people are just trained in this idea of looking down on others. Us, them. We're just trained in that. We're trained to notice the sins of others. Trained, we're trained to minimize ours and maximize theirs, even though Jesus says do the exact opposite of that. And he does it not because we're objectively the worst sinners in the world, a million times worse than anyone else we see, um, but to give us this attitude of humility, utter humility, to free us from our addiction to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to free us from our judgments. And the vast, vast majority of people on the planet don't know that they're judgers. I didn't know I was a judger, even though, in fact, I thought myself as a very open-minded, very tolerant person until I woke up to the chatter in my brain. And then I realized I've got a gossip column that's almost nonstop, evaluating, always evaluating, approve, disapprove, like, dislike, da 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 and see, we know from the teachings of Jesus that what goes on between your ears is just as important as what you do with your body. And maybe what you do with your body has greater consequences on others, but, uh, but you're still doing it, if you're just doing it in your head, we've got to wake up to our gossip. Because <laughs> as long as we're gossiping there, it blocks the flow of love into us and blocks the flow of love through us. So this message, I feel like this message about the centrality of love, it, it, it's so basic. All of us have heard something like this before. But it's Christianity 101 and Christianity PhD. It's 101 because it's so elementary. It's so basic. We all heard it before, but it's also PhD because we're never going to move off of this one. We, never, we can never graduate from this. We'll never get to the point where we say, oh, I got that one taken care of, and now let's move on to doctrine or something or else. When Paul says, above all, put on love, he means it all the time. <laughs> put on The most important thing to the day you die is to learn how to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. 
So our slogan here, and I love our slogan here, I thought maybe it was too simple a couple of years ago, but now I think it's profound. We're learning to love together, because that is everything. It's learning to love together. It's learning how to be human together. It's learning how to be a follower of Jesus together. It's learning how to manifest the Imago Day together. It's learning the most important thing together. It's the most important message, and yet I feel like it's the most ignored message. In fact, in some places they look, oh, love, 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 love. That's a liberal thing. What we need is good doctrine. And you need good doctrine. I'm all for good doctrine, but above all, put on love. Above all, put on love. We never get beyond it. So what do I want to do this morning? Uh, and, and, and I'm going to try to, unlike last week, I'll try to get to the meat of the message before there's three minutes left to go in the sermon. <laughs> Bad timing last week. But what I want to do is I, I want to zoom out and, and look at the big picture, the biggest picture we can look at, and put love in the con- Why is it so important? And the reason we're going to see here this morning is that it's the very purpose of creation. It's why anything exists. Um, God is love and everything, everything God does is done out of love. And so everything exists for the purpose of love. This is the bullseye of all of creation. I want to start by looking at John 17. This beautiful prayer that Jesus prays uh, just prior to his crucifixion. And he's talking to the Father here. And listen to what he says and I'll spend some time unpacking this. He says, I ask, Father, not only on behalf of these these disciples who are, who, are, who are here in front of me. But I ask also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. Apparently we're supposed to be talking about this to people. That they all may be one. That's his prayer. May they be one. Now listen to this. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you. As you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. We're supposed to be in the Father and Son, the way the Father is in the Son, the way the Son is in the Father. <laughs> so that, and here's the end game of this, the world may believe that you've sent me. So our ability, our willingness to replicate the indwelling love of the triune God, the love the Father has for the Son, the love the Son has for the Father, the love the Spirit has for the Father and Son, as we replicate that in our life, as we learn how to love together, that's how the world's supposed to know that Jesus is for real. When they can see the love, and you, we, we see this throughout the New Testament, here's how they'll know that you are my disciples. It's by your love. By our love, they'll know that Jesus Christ is sent from the Father, that Jesus Christ reveals the Father. Our love is supposed to be the proof that this thing is for real. That's our selling point. What are we doing on that? Then, then Jesus says this, So the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So that they may be one as we are one. Something about the glory here creates this oneness. It reflects this oneness. The oneness of the triune God. I in them and you in me that they may become completely one. As they're dwelling in us the way we dwell in one another, they become completely or, or thoroughly one, perfectly one, as we are one. And then again he says, so that the world may know that you've sent me. So this is our selling point. This is supposed to be the proof. The world may know that you've sent me and you've loved them even as you've loved me. The same way that you've loved me, that's how you love them. May they know that because they're seeing it in your people. Then he says, I made your name known. And remember in the, in the Hebrew mindset, the, the concept of name is, is not just about a tag or a title. It, it's, it's your character. Uh, it's your reputation. And we use the word like that sometimes ourselves, uh, where he's really made a name for himself or something like that. I've made your name known, your character known. 
to them, and I will continue to make it known. Why? So that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Oh, this thing is so pa- okay, now, Get ready, because this is getting a little theological. Put your thinking caps on. Uh, th- this is intense stuff, but it's so beautiful. Okay, let's start with this concept of glory. There's a lot of screwy ideas out there about the glory of God. Um, I could give you a list of about 47 books that I've read that have, I think, screwy ideas about the glory of God. This is a major strand of the church tradition. It's most clearly expressed in the Reformed tradition, which is the Calvinist tradition, but it also is expressed outside of that, where everything exists for the glory of God, and the world was created for the glory of God. Hallelujah. But in this thinking, this line of thinking, the glory is associated with omnipotence, God's power. And the glory of God is that God, because he's God, has the power to do anything that he wants and the right to do anything he wants. So he glorifies himself by proving that. So if you read, like, for example, the Heidelberg Heidelberg Confession of Faith, which is a classic Reformed confession, it says that God, from before the foundation of the world, from all eternity, predestines all that comes to pass. Why? Because he can. He predestines all that's going to come to pass. The good and the bad. The health and the sickness. The life and the death. The peace times and the war times, the dreams and the nightmares, and ultimately who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. God decrees it all before there ever exists a world. Why? Because he can. And he's displaying his right to do that. And so he decides that some are going to go to heaven, and that that, that glorifies his mercy. But he decrees that the majority of human beings are going to go to hell. And in the Heidelberg Confession of Faith, hell is eternal suffering. And he does that because he can. And he says that this is just. He's sowing forth his just wrath against these infidels who are believing and doing exactly what he predestined them to believe and do. And if you're saying, how is that possibly just? Well, that's, that just means that your sense of justice is intact. Good for you. Because there's nothing just about this. It's the sickest program I can imagine. It's like a little kid creating little clay figures and then punishing them eternally for being the way that he made them. It's like, I don't get, but who am I to talk back to God? And that's just probably means that I'm reprobate or something. This glory of God is God's power. I get to do whatever I want. No, you got to wonder, what is so praiseworthy about that? See, that, that, this kind of glory strikes me as sort of the glory of the, the, the hangman who comes and hangs people just randomly. But as long as he doesn't hang me, I'll say you're all good and all glorious. Oh, glory to the hangman. Just don't hang me. And in this theology, you've got to say glory to the hangman, even if he's going to hang your kid. Because there's no guarantee that your kid's going to be uh, elect. Maybe the kid's reprobate. And you've got to say glory to God, who predestined your child to go to eternal hell. What's glorious about this? Look, God could create that world. He could do that. Of course he could. He's got all the power. But that'd be, it's like, would you praise me if I say, hey, look, look at, I can wiggle my thumb. Oh, okay, my thumb will do anything I want. Oh, I have the right to do anything I want with my thumb. Yeah, you do, Greg, because it's your thumb. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to say, oh, praise Greg, because he can wiggle his thumb. Yeah, God can do anything he wants, but it's an innate power. What's praiseworthy about that? It doesn't take any character to do its innately power of yours. It takes no character to wiggle your thumb. Now, it's not praiseworthy. This, the, the biblical concept of glory, is, I, 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 see, that kind of glory I submit to you, is the, that's the normal kind of glory that human beings lust after. That's the kind of power we've always wanted. Power to control, power to have our way, power to do our will, power to protect ourselves, power to squash our enemies. And so we we just divinize that power, we call it glory. Oh, if only we got to run the universe, we'd do it this way, and we'd be glorious. So we project that onto God. 
So important that we just let Jesus wipe away all of our preconceptions of God. Just let him wipe them all away (laughs) And, and start from scratch. Here's what Jesus says. Listen to this. He says, now my soul is troubled. This is just before his crucifixion. He says, and what should I say about this troubling? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? I'm troubled, but I'm not going to ask for, to be saved from it. He actually later on did request it in the garden. He's like, Father, is it possible for this cup to pass from me? And giving what he was facing, no one could blame him. But he says, no, it's for this reason that I came to this hour. He says, Father, glorify your name. This is the hour in which the Father will be glorified. And a voice came from heaven and says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And then in, in verse 32, he says, and I, when I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. And there's a, a double entendre going on there. He says, when, I, when, he, when he's lifted up, it refers to his crucifixion. But then it also refers to the fact that, that because of the crucifixion, we lift him up. And as we lift him up, he draws people to himself. And he said, he said this to indicate the kind of death that he was going to die. So throughout the Gospel of John, we find that the cross, the crucifixion is referred to the hour. Jesus says to his mother, you know, my hour's not yet come. And you have this refrain throughout the Gospel of John. The hour refers to this period of, of, where the, the Father's going to be most glorified. Now Jesus is always putting on display the Father's character. He says, if you see me, you see the Father. That's true at all times. But on the cross... He most unambiguously puts on display the true essence, the substance, the character of God the Father. And what he reveals is that, 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 that the Father is self-sacrificial love, other-oriented love. And in doing this, he's glorifying the Father. The glory of the Father, it's not his bicep, it's his heart. The glory of the Father is his character, this willingness to sacrifice all that could be for the sake of this race of human beings who could not have deserved it less. That's, that, that's the glory of God. God's glory is his other-oriented love. And that shouldn't surprise us because we've learned that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And we've learned, and this is an important one to lock down, you, you don't get to define what love is. Uh, and that's a good thing. We can't define love based on our feelings or what the culture says or a song that we heard or whatever. We base it on scripture, and here's what scripture says, 1 John 3, 16. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, so also we should lay down our life for one another. That's what love is. That's what agape love is. It's the kind of love that we're to be cultivating. It's the kind of love that God is. So if God is this other-oriented love, Father, Son, Spirit, God embodies this kind of love that's expressed on Calvary, well then, it makes sense that the glory of God is the shininess of that love. When you put that love on display, you're shining God. You're, 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 you're magnifying God. And see, here's the thing. That's why God wants to give this glory away. He wants to give this glory away. Jesus says, you've given me this glory, and now I'm giving this glory to them. Now, if the glory was omnipotence, as the Reformed tradition says, then we should all be omnipotent. Last I checked, I'm not. But when you understand that the glory is the self-sacrificial love of God, folks, this is the point of everything right here. It's to glorify God. That's right. Everything is just for the glory of God. But what's that glory? The glory is this other-oriented love. And so as Jesus now takes on this mission of manifesting this other-oriented love, he's given to us this mission of other-oriented love. And so when we shine the way God shines, we're glorifying God. When we love the way God loves, we're glorifying God. When we sacrifice the way God sacrifices for others, we're glorifying God. When we love our enemies, we're glorifying God. When we notice the people that aren't noticed by others, we're glorifying God. That's the glory of God. Put it on display shine. 
this, this, the, the calling of the church is just to shine God's character. This is the purpose for everything. So here's this little graph and kind of just paint off this big picture in, in terms of images. I, I imagine God to be, you know, as a triangle. Triangle with love uh, in the middle because God is love. But God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From all eternity, God is this other-oriented, perfect love. And out of the fullness of that love, God then wants to create as an expression of his love. It's not out of a need. It's not because God was lonely or something. It's not, not, not to meet a deficiency in God at all, but of the fullness of God's love, he overflows and now creates others. He creates human beings. And we human beings have a, have a heart-shaped need in our life. That's why it's, it's empty in this diagram. We have a hunger, and that hunger is for a sense of feeling loved, for a sense of feeling fully alive, for the sense of having a purpose, for the sense of mattering to someone. And the, that, that core need, the essence of it, is supposed to be met by God. He created us with a God-shaped vacuum because he wants to pour himself into us. And the whole purpose of creation only works if we're letting God pour his love into us. See, then as God pours his love into us, and just, he fills us up, that core need, so we feel good about ourselves, we feel good about life, not because someone approves of us and we're popular and we accomplish things, but because we know what God thinks about it, what our creator thinks about us. Okay, and so now we get filled with that love, and then the, the goal is for us then to overflow with this love back to God, and that's called worship. We just describe worth to God. And then to overflow with the same love towards one another, all people at all times, in all conditions, no ifs, ands, buts, or exception clauses. We overflow. So it's not based on the merits of the person we're flowing towards. This is based on the fact that God's filling us with this love, and now we're supposed to overflow with this love towards others. And then the human race, in God's design, this is the purpose of creation, in God's design, human beings were then supposed to overflow with this love towards the earth and the animal kingdom. The way God overflows towards us, we overflow to the earth and the animal kingdom. And the way that God is lovingly Lord over us, we're loving lords over the earth and the animal kingdom. And that, folks, is our first mandate. It stays our first mandate. I still think it's the first benchmarker of how we're doing as a species. Are we taking care of God's property? And are we taking care of God's pets? All right? It's, 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 not, it's not a peripheral thing. It's a central thing. So always be thinking about that. Am I, am I treating the earth right? Am I treating God's animals right? And, and, and so in God's purpose, we're supposed to overflow with this. And in the end, the whole goal of everything is, is for everything then to, in its own unique way, reflect the love of God. And even animals in their own way reflect the glory of God. Um, now, they're also in a state of needing to be redeemed. But like us, they will be redeemed, praise God. And so everything's supposed to reflect the, the, the love of the, the triune God. Our task is not only to mirror... Not only to mirror or to replicate the love of the triune God towards one another, towards all people, but it's to participate in the love of the triune God. So listen to this language here. Jesus says, he said that, that as you, Father, are in me, and I am in, in them, may they also be in us. I in them and you in me, that they may be completely one. There's this mutual indwelling, and Jesus uses the same language of the indwelling of the Father and Son for human beings. So you know, now I want to teach you this really beautiful word. It, it's a kind of a big word. It's not often used word. But keep your thinking caps on. The word is perichoresis. Some of you know this word. Because I mentioned it before. We've taught on it here. Perichoresis, it's a word that was used by the Cappadocian fathers. First used by the Cappadocian fathers. Um, to describe the mutual indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. And the concept here is that because God is pure love. Each of the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit pour themselves out so thoroughly towards one another and are so thoroughly open and receptive to one another 
that the whole being of, of the one dwells in the other two. And what defines the uniqueness of every, each person of the Trinity is simply the unique way in, in which they reflect the glory of the other two. It's, 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 it's a God of perfect love. Well, here Jesus applies that to us. The same language applied to us. So God's goal for us is to love in the paracritic, mutually indwelling way that the Father loves. And, in, in, and by that means to participate in the paracritic love of the triune God. Paracritic. Everyone say paracritic. It means mutually indwelling. It's mutually indwelling way that God loves. We participate in the love of God, and that's the point of everything. The goal of creation, God created out of love for the purpose of inviting others to be dancing in this love. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's an expanded dance of the triune God. Hallelujah. And this way, the entire creation was created. The Heidelberg Confession got this right. Everything exists for the glory of God. She says they have the wrong concept of glory. It exists for the purpose of love. And our job is to, and our invitation is to participate in that love. So more specifically, here's how it works. When you surrender your life to Christ, you are put in Christ. That phrase is used over 100 times in the New Testament. In Christ. Paul uses it all the time. And it denotes, it's, it's not like a metaphor, um, like we're in touch or something like that. Scholars agree that Paul's talking metaphysics here. Something in reality changes when you surrender your life to Christ. It's almost as if you changed your address. You were living over here, but now you're living here in Christ. Um, so Paul says, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, that we've been transported, when we believe, we've been transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And we've been placed in the son, praise God. Um, and that's our new identity. That's our new place. It's an ontological change has occurred. We're, we have a new status, as it were. The status of being in Christ. And so here's an example of, of what the Bible says about us as we are in Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 8. Listen to this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Look at that phrase. In Christ. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every one of them. It's given to us. In Christ, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. I'll pause there for a moment. Paul doesn't say that we were chosen to be in Christ as opposed to, be, as opposed to other people. He didn't choose us to be in Christ. What he chose is that whoever's in Christ will be holy and blameless before him in love. That's what was predestined. Whoever's in Christ will be holy and blameless before him in love. And now that we've said yes to the call, we can say it was chosen for us, we who believe, to be holy and blameless before him in love. But that takes place in Christ. In Christ, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, part of those blessings are we're made holy and blameless. He decrees that for us, and that love is in the process of transforming us into that reality. In Christ, we've been adopted. He goes on to say this. In Christ, where are we here? Uh, yeah. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. So in Christ we're adopted as his children to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely lavishes on us in the beloved. We're loved in the beloved and we, 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 grace is lavished on us in the beloved and we're freely forgiven in the beloved. We're giving every spiritual blessing in the beloved. And in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavishes on us. All that, folks, takes place in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. Hallelujah. That's our identity. That's why Jesus says, he says, I made your character known to them, Father, and I will make it known so that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. In Christ, in Christ, 
We're loved with the same love that the Father has for the, for the Son. The same love, not a derivative. It's like this. I've used this analogy before a little bit, although not with this guy. This is uh, Skater Man. Say hi to Skater Man. Skater Man. I put up with Skater Man in the jar. Now, I want to keep on looking at Skater Man, but notice this. As I, actually, it's Skateboard Man. As I look at Skateboard Man, I have to look at the jar, and if I want to look at the jar, I have to look at Skateboard Man. I can't separate them now. So also, when you believe, you are in some metaphysical sense, and this is an analogy here, put in Christ Jesus. Imagine this jar is Christ Jesus. Oh, look, he's hanging. Oh, that, oh, that takes. Oh, there he is. Now, now he's well-grounded in Christ Jesus. And when the Father loves Christ Jesus, as the Father has been doing throughout eternity, and this is the bond of the Holy Spirit, well, then now we are caught up in that same love, that same love. And it's not like we're loved, like it's not an individual love towards us individually, as though, you know, he loves us because we're like the toenail of Christ, but he just loves Christ. No, he loves us individually, but he loves us individually as we are in Christ, because as we are in Christ is the way that we're supposed to be. And we, this is the purpose for everything. We were designed for this. The best you you're going to ever be is the you that you are in Christ. That's where you receive every spiritual blessing. That's where the transformation occurs. That's where it all happens, praise God. And so you are loved this moment with the same love that the Father has for the Son, the Son for the Father, the Spirit for the Father and Son. Not a derivative love, not a secondary love, not a watered-down love. It's the very same identical love. We're participating in this triune dance, praise God, and it's glorious. Amen. Give God thanks for that. Amen. You couldn't be more loved than you are this second. Because if God is perfect love, and that's his very definition, there's no variation in him. None. He doesn't love you more or less. He's God. He's just being himself towards you. That's why James says there's no shadow of turning in him. There's no variation. John says in him he is light, and in him there is no darkness. He is love, and in him there is no malice. There's nothing in God that is contrary to God's perfect other-oriented love. And now you are the object of that love. You are the object of that love. You are loved with the same love the Father has for the Son. You could not possibly be more loved. And I want to say this. This applies to you, even if you're not a Christian. It applies to you if you're a total pagan. You may be listening to this message and, and you don't have any space in your brain for organized religion, if that's what you think this is. We're not very organized and we're not religious, but, but you can have whatever thoughts you have on that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. I don't want to be too organized and never want to be too religious. I lost my religion a long time ago for the sake of a relationship. How's that? All right. Hallelujah. So, so there's no, God is just being himself towards you. And, and this applies whether, I mean, you maybe are listening to this in prison because you murdered somebody. I don't know. Maybe you've completely screwed up your life. Maybe you've hurt a ton of people. Maybe you feel like your life is hopeless and empty and futile right now and you've just blown it all. Maybe you hate God. I don't know. But he, he loves you. He loves you with a perfect everlasting love. It's just that it will do you no good unless you accept it. Because love is a relationship. It can't be a one-way thing. God's loving you, but, but the goal of the creation is to have a relationship with God that now transforms your relationship with yourself, with others, and with the earth and the animal kingdom. It's a relationship. And for that, you've got to say yes. You've got to submit. The goal is for you to participate in this love. But you can't be a participant 
If you're hating God, if you're, unless you're trusting him, I, I encourage you, you know, if, if you, whatever reasons you have for not believing in God or not believing in Jesus or not believing in the church or not believing in whatever, I, I encourage you for a moment, can you set that aside and pretend like you don't know anything and just look at the beautiful Jesus Christ who reveals this beautiful God who's on your side. He's, he's in favor. He wants you to flourish. He wants you to prosper. Maybe the rest of your life will be spent in prison like this kid who assassinated those 10 people, but he still wants you to, in that context to prosper and to prosper throughout e- and flourish throughout eternity because he loves you. Can you just accept that? Can you just accept it? Become a participant in the divine nature. Peter says this in 2 Peter. He says, God has given to us through these, through these things his precious and very great promises. His pre- oh, they're so precious and very great. When the world offers you no hope, these promises offer you hope. They're precious and they're great. And the promise is that we will someday see him for we shall be like him. Hallelujah. The promise is that love will win in the end. And we believe these promises when we hold fast to them. Peter says this. So that through them you may escape the corruption that is in the world. You can transcend the corruption that's in this world because of lust, lust for power, lust to be right, lust for sex, lust for whatever. You can escape that when you're hanging fast to the promises of God. And then he says, and now, and may become participants in the divine nature. We become participants in the divine nature. Man, am I feeling anointed right now? You can tell I'm anointed when I sweat. Sweating is our word for anointing. <laughs> the Holy Ghost is flowing. Amen. And my voice is a lot better than it was last week, isn't it? I mean, it's still a little bit raspy, but, you know, that's kind of sexy, so. <laughs> I don't want one of these crystal clear voices. I, I like a little bit of sexy, grovelly voice. We don't become God. He's not saying we become God. Uh, we already got one God. That's enough. But, but we are participants in God, participants in this love. Another way of saying that is that we glorify God. And this is the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. prayer. May they be one in us. But they become one as they dwell in us, and I in them, and they in us, and you in me. And there's the mutual indwelling of the triune God, the pouring out and receptivity of the triune God now becomes ours, and it gets spread. And that's the point of everything. That's the goal of everything. It expresses the beauty and the love of the triune God. And the promise is that someday everything in creation, everything in creation, will be doing that. Because everything that's contrary to that will be gone. Hallelujah. And the creation will be set free. Uh, Paul says this in my last verse. He goes, God has made known to us the mystery of his will. This is what I'm talking about this morning. The mystery of his will. Why do we exist? What's the purpose for anything? Some people think that this is just a big bang. There's no point to anything. It's just an absurd, like an absurd hiccup. Boom, it's a big bang. No point to it or anything. You just happen to be here. But no, the Bible says this. The mystery, there's, there's a God who created this world and he's got a will for it. And it, it expresses his good pleasure. And we know what that good pleasure is when it's set forth in Jesus Christ. And it's strange because you wouldn't think this would be God's good pleasure. But God's good pleasure is giving himself away for us. God's good pleasure is to love us and to see us transformed by that love. That's God's good pleasure. That's what we see in Jesus Christ. You got to forget what you thought you know about God and start over with Jesus. He'll give you a totally different program. As a plan for the fullness of time. We're not there yet, but there's going to come a fullness of time. And when that time has been reached, God will gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. Whatever there is to gather up, it will be gathered up. Past, present, all will be summed up. It uses this weird, weird Greek term, anakephaleao. It actually means uh, summed up into one head. But it means that everything will be harmonized, reconciled, brought together. Reconciled with God, reconciled with one another, so that God's shalom... God's perfect peace, which is about his love, about his harmony, will permeate all of creation. Everything will be reconciled. Everything will reflect the love of the triune God. And that's what's going on right now. It says in Colossians 1, 19 and 20, that by means of the cross, 
Which is to say, by means of God's self-sacrificial love, God is reconciling everything to each other and to God in heaven and earth and things under the earth. That's the point of absolutely everything. Folks, um, see, this is the best way to live. God calls us to this because this is what we're created for. And you'll never discover how burdensome it is to be the judge of the universe until you give up that job description. It, we, we walk around with a commentary in our head towards, about people and evaluating things and whatever. And, 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 we, and it gives us a, a false sense of worth because we're acting like a parasite. Well, at least I'm not as fat as that person. At least I'm not as gross as that person. At least I'm better prepared than that person. And it feels like, okay, I'm not that, 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 that worthless. But what it's doing is it's, it's, it's blocking the flow of love in us and the, love of, the flow of love through us. And it, it, it's, it's an albatross around our neck when you can just set aside all judgments. And it takes practice. It takes discipline. And especially in this environment in which we are at, it takes constant pushing back against the powers. But if we can do that, you'll experience this kind of freedom. I remember the first time I felt this in the supermarket when I woke up to the judgments in my, not supermarket, but a, a mall. And, and I woke up to the gossip column in my brain. And, and the Lord just said, I, I didn't give you that job description. Your job description is the love. So start doing that. And, and so I set the judgment aside and just started loving. And it's like, ah, oh, ah, oh. it's, and what I love about this, the call of God, and this is the center of the center. This is the bullseye. This is all or nothing. It's so simple. You never have to think about it. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to wonder about it. Is it the right time to love? Yes. Is it the right person to love? Yes. And if, if, it's always yes. Hallelujah. You don't have to think about this one. But we do have to do it. That means we have to remember to do it. So I'll end with this. The linchpin of this whole thing is the love of God going into us, filling us up, so then we overflow towards others. Um, we're to be living life out of this abundance, not out of desperation like most people are, trying to get stuff. No, we live out of this abundance. But that means you've got to be receiving it. Do you know how much you're loved? Do you know how much you're loved? Now, I guarantee you, you don't. And I don't, I don't, I don't. just when I think I got it, there's a new layer to it. And that's why it's so beautiful. It goes on and on and on. But do you know as much as you can right now that you are loved? Do you believe that to the core of your being? So try this. This is an exercise. And I would like us to be practicing something like this exercise once a week. Right? At least through the series and then get addicted to it and keep on going with it. Imagine right now the person that you have the most affection for. And this isn't a competition. Like, don't have like, oh, who do I love more? I love them all. No, what pops into your head? It doesn't matter. Right now, I'm thinking my granddaughter, Tasha, because I spent three hours with her yesterday, and she's the cutest little kid in the world, and she's, she wins my heart. I just, I just adore her. So I'm thinking of Tasha, my other granddaughter. But who comes to your mind? Think about who that is. And it may be a pet comes to mind. That's okay. I sometimes have this. My dog has taught me a lot about the love of God. I'll tell you that. Because I just, I just rejoice when I see her having a good time. Uh, but, but right now I'm thinking of Tasha. Okay, so get this person in your mind and think about them as vividly as possible. As vividly as possible. And feel that affection towards them. Maybe you're, you're seeing them in your mind's eye, in your imagination, where all the good things of God take place. You're, you're, you're thinking of the last time you saw them and the affection you have for them and how your heart was just going to burst with love towards them. Lock that in. And just savor that for a second. Okay. And now... I want you to replace the loving person that you're looking at with you. Now, so you're looking at yourself and you 
are in the place of God. See, God looking at you with the, same, and with the same love that you have for that person you love, that's how God is loving you right now. The same delight that you have for this, your beloved, God has for you. But that's a lie. Because the delight, the love that God has for you, try to imagine this, is let's say 10 times greater than the love that you have for that beloved person. When I think of Tasha, I can't think of loving someone more than I love little Tasha. But God loves me 10 times more than that. Oh, man. I can't get my brain around that. But the truth is, He loves me 100 times more than I love Tasha. A thousand, million times. I can't, my brain can't go there. But it's good for my brain to try. It's good for your brain to try. Go as far as you can. How much love can you conceive of? Well, that's what God has for you. And now just drink in that love the way you'd want this beloved person to be opened up to your love. Well, you open up to God's love like that. And if there's parts of your brain that are saying, no, that's too good to be true. That's impossible. I've done this, that, or other thing. Will you just here make a decision, a very important decision, to trust God more than you trust that damaged brain of yours. Trust God more than the voices in your head. Calvary says everything. It says it all, what God thinks about you. You have unsurpassable worth. Drink deeply of this and to soak it in. And I encourage us to make an exercise of this at least once a week. Sometimes I maybe put on music that helps melt the heart and get you into it. But we need to grasp just how much we are loved because that is, that's the fuel that the kingdom runs on. Paul says the love of Christ compels us. That's the fuel the kingdom runs on. So here's the assignment for this week. Number one, Practice this, this being, let God love on you once a week. That's just a, there's, there's three, three disciplines here that I think are a staple of the Christian life. I wish, I, I'd like us to be the people who just know that we are the people who do these three things. Number one, we spend time with Jesus once a week at least to receive, just bask in his love. Just drink it deeply. Let him love on you. Number two, when we're walking around, we bless people. We just are, are loving people. Love is a verb. We've got to be doing it. If we're 100% preoccupied with our business all day long, we don't have any space to love people. Go wherever you go. You don't have to do this all the time because you've got to pay attention to other things, but make it a regular part of your day that you're just randomly blessing people when you're driving, when you're going shopping. Whenever you have time, you have a little bit of brain space, use it for the kingdom. Begin to integrate that into your life. And no, you know, it's a weird thing to do. If you're in a supermarket and you're sitting there blessing everybody, you're probably the only one in the supermarket doing that. So can we be the weird people who do this weird thing in our head whenever we're going about our day? And just know that there's other people doing this. And finally, and I say this all the time, pick out the two, three, four people that you have the hardest time loving and the hardest time praying for and commit to praying for them every day. Can we be the people who pray for our enemies every day, who bless people all day long, every day, and who spend time with Jesus getting full? That's what it is. To, nothing could be more important than that. This is the purpose for everything. Amen? Amen. Amen. We are the people who do this. Uh, don't forget that on Tuesdays we have got uh, uh, the MuseCast. And they go deeper with the message. You can get some good insights uh, and things uh, by, by tuning into that. We've got the gathering groups. Encourage you to get on these gathering groups, meet people, and, and go deeper with the message. Uh, if you're going to be here next week and you, you have kids, let us know so we have enough kids, enough workers in the kids' room. And we do need more volunteer, volunteers there, so please prayerfully consider that. And finally, and finally, what was the final? Oh, yeah, we've got prayer teams available in-house up here at the front or, or online uh, for you wonderful folks that are participating online. And uh, those of you who are in-house here, We've got a picnic here, so don't leave. Let's have some picnic and have some fellowship. Finally, COVID's done. We get to talk to each other. COVID's not done, is it? Shoot, that was a misstatement. But at least it's, it's uh, I can't even say it's waning. It's actually making a comeback. So quick, before it comes back, let's have a party. <laughs> God bless you guys. See you next week.